Yeah. You got it. Okay. I'll keep going. Flawless. Yeah. No, no. There was, there, was, there was a little bit of a flaw in the Anyway, thank you for bringing the word today. Absolutely. Lord bless you. Thank you. Well, you can turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. I'd like to talk about a few things in Luke 9 uh, this Sunday and, uh, and next Sunday. I figured there might be a, a good reason for specific topics to be addressed in our, in our visit, in my time of preaching here. And two things that I find to be very important that I think you would want to know about myself and um, my preaching ministry or what I think uh, Christian ministry at large should contain, um, I want to cover today and tomorrow, uh, today and next Sunday. So today we're going to look at discipleship as the title on the program says. Uh, what does discipleship look like in Christ? What does it mean to be a follower of Christ? Um, next Sunday, Lord willing, we get through the week okay. I want to follow up this passage in Luke 9 with the next passage, and that is when Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem and talk about the saving determination of our Lord. So I want to talk about two things while we're here. One, discipleship. What does it mean to follow Christ? Uh, And that on a little bit more of a practical level, but also look at our Lord again and his resolve and his really righteous determination to save you from your sins. That, that follows up, and that's next Sunday. So, please follow along as I read, um, starting in verse 46. Luke 9, verse 46. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side. And said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him. For the one who is not against you is for you. Let's pray one more time. Gracious Heavenly Father, we are glad to call you Father. We are glad that you have adopted us into your family, that though we were children of wrath and sons of disobedience, we now, by virtue of your indwelling spirit, We cry out, Abba, Father, and we relate to you in ways uh, we never could before. Thank you that you are our Father. Thank you that your Son is our Lord. Thank you that your Spirit is our Lord and intercedes for us. I ask that as we open the Word this morning, you would give great grace to everyone here to understand what does it mean to be a disciple of Christ. What does it mean? What does it not mean? 
how are we to understand this in light of your own son's incarnation? Give us grace for that, we pray. Amen. So, as I said, I want to talk about discipleship. Some of the times when we read the New Testament, we find what discipleship should look like by the disciples' uh, honorary and honorable ways of walking and talking and living. Uh, Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ is, is one of those. Uh, there are also times when we learn what discipleship looks like through their negative example, as we have in this passage before us. So not only are our teaching moments from positive examples of, of the disciples, of the apostles, no, nonetheless, but through their negative example. And that's, that's exactly what we have here. And we need to, I think it's best to understand what discipleship is in light of Jesus' incarnation. He, he is the eternal Son of God. And, and he, he comes down to earth and he, he condescends. He, he takes on flesh. But he doesn't sing his praises. And there aren't a lot of times where there are angels going around singing his praises. Uh, he doesn't draw attention to himself. He doesn't exalt himself. He doesn't pridefully show who he really is, although he is the Son of God incarnate. And there are many times when he's talking to people where they are blaspheming to his face. But he doesn't often correct them. He he comes in human flesh, and he comes as a servant. He comes as a human. And, and that model, now that does a, a lot for us, but that, that model does a lot for our understanding of what does it mean to follow in Jesus' footsteps. If I am going to call myself a Christian, a, a little Christ, a Christ follower, what does that mean? What does that look like? And we see here, that it is often quite at opposite of what we would initially and maybe knee-jerk reaction think. When Jesus came and took on flesh, he didn't come with high thoughts of himself, uh, pomp and circumstance. He did not um, show off just who he is. We may... We might call that today virtue signaling, right? He doesn't do that. And he, he's at pains to tell his disciples not to do the same. That they ought to take the lower seat and serve. If they want to call themselves Christians, they must follow in the footsteps of Christ. And so there are three specific ways just in the negative that I want to bring that up uh, today. What is discipleship in Christ? First, we see in this text that discipleship in Christ is not a competition. It's not a competition. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. Christian discipleship is not a matter of competing against one another. And trying to outdo one another. Now, Romans 12.10 does say to outdo one another in love. I doubt that's what they were actually arguing about. 
but they had infighting, and there was pride. So first and foremost, Christian discipleship is not a competition with each other. It's not me versus you, or, or one church versus another church. But we're actually all sinners saved by grace, pursuing one Lord and one master. So they have an argument over which of them is the greatest. The audacity. The audacity to argue in the presence of Christ which one of these men is the greatest. Is the greatest man. Now, I don't want to completely heap uh, condemnation on them unnecessarily because should we be there, we would have probably been doing the same thing. But I also want to show you that maybe there's a reason why they were arguing. Back in Luke 7, this is probably months and months prior to this engage, uh, engagement in chapter 9, Luke writes about uh, John the Baptist's ministry. And he, and he writes about Jesus' evaluation of John the Baptist. This is in chapter 7, verses 18 and following. I'm not going to read the whole thing. But, but there's an occasion where John the Baptist sends messengers to Christ. Are you the one whom we have been promised to receive, or should we look for somebody else? Right? And, and there's an engaged uh, conversation there. Jesus goes on to talk highly about just who John the Baptist was. He says, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So, so now this is not Jesus' fault. I'm not putting the blame on Jesus' shoulders here for the argument of the disciples. But Jesus had told them, you need to understand John's place in history. He was a forerunner for, for Jesus Christ. And yet, even in his forerunner place, he was least in the kingdom of God compared to you who I'm standing for, before today. That's what Jesus says to them. And, and we don't have time to get into all the specifics, but but, but generally speaking, Jesus is saying that because he's talking to the disciples as they are living under new covenant promises. Forgiveness of sin, mediation of Christ, Jesus' presence physically among them right then and there, the coming of the Holy Spirit, all these wonderful, wonderful new covenant promises which cause an average ordinary Christian to be greater than those in the Old Testament who didn't have such a privilege, right? They looked to Christ as he was still to come, and we look back to Christ on what he has already done. And so he says, John the Baptist was great, but you are even greater. Now, you got to think that we are so predictable. You give us an inch, we take a mile. You know, the disciples say, oh, okay, I'm great. I'm great. And, and they argue. Who's great? Who's the greatest? Now, there's another, there's another thing why they might be arguing why one of them is the greatest. Maybe days prior to this, to this exchange, there is the Mount of Transfiguration. And Jesus takes his 
three disciples. Uh, not 12. Three of them. He just takes three of them up to the Mount of Transfiguration. He appears to them in glory. Moses and Elijah are there. They're talking about his departure at Jerusalem. And there is an audible voice of the Father saying to, well, to Peter, James, and John, Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. Okay. So Peter, James, and John experience this and no one else, right? Bartholomew, no. Thaddeus, no, right? Judas, no, right? Just Peter, James, and John, right? You might wonder, I wonder if they were egging this argument on. What do siblings do when they, maybe one of them out of, let's say, four of them, get a privilege that the others don't? What happens? Envy, jealousy, hatred, competition, competition towards one another. And so they're arguing over which is the greatest. And, you know, it might have been like, hey, nine of them are saying, well, it's clearly either Peter, James, or John, but which of the three, right? But they're arguing. They're fighting over who is the greatest. And such competition just has no place in the Christian life, not in Christ's kingdom. What would we be competing for? Think about that. If discipleship in Christ is not a competition, what would we be competing for? What's the measure of who would be the greatest? Library size? Church size? Spiritual gift test, um, name it, right? But what are competitions based on? They're based on performance. They're based on, they're based on merit. And there's no performance, there's no merit in the life of Christ. We receive all his merit. We have none of our own. Our, our, our good works are filthy rags. So even in our jousting with one another and competing with one another, we forget that we might be trying to uh, justify ourselves to each other or to God by our works, right? But there's no competition in the Christian life. No, rather than competing with one another, we should be encouraging one another. And to take that sport metaphor further, cheerleading. Happy for the well-being of somebody else, even at my own detriment. Even at my own detriment. You think of what Christ did in the incarnation. He's the son of glory. He's the son of God, praised by angels from eternity. And he comes and stoops down to earth, and he doesn't sing his own praises. doesn't toot his own horn. He hides that, doesn't Show that, doesn't advertise that at all. Although it's rightfully his to show. What can we learn from that? That instead of saying, oh, I'm better, I'm better, I'm better, I'm better. No, I will, I will do the Jesus way, and that is I will edify someone even to my own detriment. Romans 12.10 says, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. 
outdo one another in showing honor. Philippians 2.3 says, With humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than yourself. Let each of us regard all of ourselves, myself, as less important than the next person. This is, this is discipleship in light of the incarnation, right? This isn't just a bunch of rules to follow. I need to pray, I need to read the Bible, so forth and so I need to go to church. No, no, no. If I really love the Lord, and what I find winsome about him was that he doesn't push his glory in my face and tell me to bow down to him, but he actually wins me over by his kindness, I should also win others over by their kindness. There's a story of Augustine um, who was enamored with the teaching and preaching of Ambrose of Milan. This is in the first few centuries of the early church. And Ambrose was a, was a great preacher, great orator, rhetoric off the charts, right? Everything, eloquent. But Augustine said what won him over wasn't his rhetoric. It wasn't his skill at delivery. It was his kindness that won him over. It was his love for his brother. There's no competition. There's no competition. We should, if there is a competition, we should be outdoing one another in love. So I should ask myself, where can I lay down my rights for my brother or enemy? What can I do to serve my brother or sister or enemy even if I don't get recognition for it. So, first off, yes, discipleship is not a competition. Also, discipleship in Christ is not self-exalting. These all kind of bleed over, but it is not self-exalting. You look at verses 47 and 48. How does Jesus um, respond to the disciples fighting? They're infighting? It's perfect wisdom. He does, with a, he does this with perfect wisdom. Jesus, verse 47, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, which means he not only saw them arguing, you know, nitpick, nitpick, nitpick. He knew the motives of their hearts. So he knew exactly what to go after on their motive. Why are they arguing? Why? He takes a child, puts him by his side, and says, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. It's not, discipleship is not self-exalting. He actually has a chance to really, like, just really lay into the disciples. How could you ever think of such a thing? He doesn't. He responds graciously to them. And look at how he corrects them. By, a word, uh, not a word picture, a, um, by taking a child and putting the child by his side. Now, he's not taking this child and putting him by his side to say, imitate this child necessarily, although we should have childlike faith. But he's taking them and putting them by, their, by his side to say, talk of greatness would not ever do this. If I think I'm great and I need to evaluate my greatness next to your greatness, I would never stoop down and take care of a child. That's below me. 
That's way below me. But Jesus, the king of glory, takes a little child, puts him next to his side, and says, do not compete with one another. Do not see yourself as great. Instead, help those who are inferior. Help those who are needy and weak. That would be true Christian greatness. One commentator on this passage says, Jesus had no romanticized notion about the qualities of children and was not setting up the child as a model for them to imitate. Children had no power, no status, and no rights, and they were regarded as insignificant and disposable. Great people manipulate for their end. Great people use and abuse. But the great ones in the kingdom would gladly stoop down and, you, and help someone who is needy, weak, dependent, than use them for their own ends. And this, again, is just a glimpse of the incarnation. Christ coming down. Not to a bunch of people who welcomed him, but were his enemies. So we do not seek to, or we ought not to, exalt ourselves, but to serve one another. Greatness seekers exploit. They manipulate. And we probably all could raise our hands and say, in this occasion or that occasion, yeah, that was me. Someone did that, you know? Greatness seekers have no, no intention of, of serving the lowly because it's beneath them. They find no delight in them. The lowly are a currency to be spent, traded, exchanged for my own self-aggrandizement. That's what greatness seekers think. When you read the epistle to the Galatians, Paul says this to them in Chapter 4, 17. They, speaking of the false teachers, they make much of you, Galatians, but for no good purpose. So the Galatians have these false teachers among them, and the false teachers prop up the Galatians. They, they make much of them, right? Paul says, you better see right through that. It's not for any good purpose. They want to shut you out that you would make much of them. That's what greatness seekers do. They use the little person to prop themselves up for that self-exaltation. And rather than us doing that, we ought to build one another up. True greatness isn't a matter of stockpiling personal accolades or giving, but giving away of yourself. What does Jesus do? If I think that to be great means to exalt myself and, and uh, put others down and compare myself to others. I would hate the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is the gospel of Jesus Christ? What do we find so winsome about Christ? What do we love about Christ? That he is perfect in every way. He's glorious. But he doesn't 
uh, force you to recognize his glory in order to convert you. But he loves sacrificially. Loves to his own hurt. He doesn't exalt himself. Indeed, John says he was not entrusting himself to men. He knew, no, he knew what was in man. But rather than exalting ourselves, we should serve one another. This is what Paul would say in Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, and, and make no mistake, that does not mean he was something other than God. But even though he was in the form of God, he did not, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, we're always humbled every December or whenever we read this account in the Gospel of Luke, born in a manger, more really correctly understood, a feeding trough. The king of glory, born voluntarily in a feeding trough. He took the form of a servant, being found, excuse me, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He loved to his own hurt. The righteous man swears to his own hurt. That is the way of Christ. That is discipleship. And if I want to call myself a disciple of Christ, in some measure, I should want to take him as my model. Now, the liberal theologians would say he's only a model, right? He's more than a model. He's also our object of faith. But I should nevertheless model my walk of faith like his own incarnation. That he stooped down and became obedient to the point of death for enemies. For his enemies. And that is true Christian discipleship. There's one other thing on this before I continue on my last point. Jesus says that those who accept such lowly and insignificant ones, children, in Jesus' name is receiving, is, is receiving Jesus and the Father. Jesus has, has fixed himself with the lowly. He likes to associate with the lowly. This is not only true in the gospel accounts, but also in Isaiah 57. He dwells with those who are lowly and contrite of spirit. But he has fixed himself to the lowly so that when we see someone who is needy, maybe like the, the weird person or the, the poor person or maybe someone who is uh, mentally unstable or whatnot, right? We all know who they are, right? And often, for some reason, we don't ever think we're that person. <laughs> but when we see the lowly person, and in Jesus' name, for Jesus' sake, receive that person warmly, lovingly, sincerely, Jesus says, that's like receiving me. Because that's how I came. 
And if you take offense at ever receiving someone like that, you would take offense at me. So if we have contempt for Jesus' gospel, or Jesus, I should say, if we have contempt for discipleship being receiving the lowly and not exalting ourselves from them or using them or manipulating them, we would then also have contempt for his gospel. Because his gospel is him coming to the needy and recognizing I am that needy one. And he voluntarily initiated salvation towards that person and, and accepted them, saved them, loved them, blessed them. So I cannot call myself a Christian disciple simultaneously saying, I, I don't have time for the, the really needy people. They're just too needy. They're always calling. They're a drag. They're, they're just weighing me down. That's completely antithetical to the gospel. So we would welcome them. I love it how Paul says in Romans 15, he has welcomed you to the glory of Christ. Welcome one another with these words, he says. So discipleship is not a competition, but cheerleading, encouraging one another. It is not self-exalting, but serving. And lastly, it is not elitist. Oh, we have, there are so many examples. There are so many examples. But Christianity, Christian discipleship is not elitist. So this is, a, this is a packed little encounter here. After he takes a child to himself, John answers, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him. So you must think, what is John countering? What has Jesus said that John says, but? Does that not always happen? Jesus makes the point, an irrefutable, gospel-centered point, receive this little one, love that little one, but but we saw someone, and we try to stop him because he does not follow with us. Jesus said, don't stop him. Leave that to me. For you, for the one who is not against you is for you. So it's not elitist. You, you can see that there is... Presumably, someone given authority like the 12 and like the 72 will be given also, the authority to cast out demons. It didn't happen a lot. It's very, very rare, except in Jesus' own earthly ministry. But he had this authority, and he's doing this. And the 12 see him, and they go, hey, hey, you. You can't do that. You can't do that. You're not following with us. Look at what they say. Because he does not follow with us. Us? Christ! Christ! They should, if anything, they're off base, no doubt about it. But should they have been on base, they would have said, he does not follow with you, Lord. So they have been brought into Jesus' inner circle. They're fighting about who, how great they are. And they say someone else who's doing objectively good things. Casting demons out of people. How could that be bad? 
I mean, he's not collecting. There's nothing in here about like the sons of Sceva and they're fraudulent, right? And they're doing this and it was, it was bogus, right, in Acts. That's not this. This is a legitimate guy casting out demons, doing something objectively good. And they said out of an elitist, proud mentality, you should stop that. You should stop that. So, and it's, I mean, just a side point of that, he does not follow with us how quickly we become lords in our own mind. That we are actually serving all one master, all one Lord. But how quickly can we think, oh, they, they need to follow me. They need to follow this church or that group or this denomination or this Christian tradition or this theological circle or blah, 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 whatever it is, right? They need to follow that. You know, Christ, Christ rebukes them. It says, what is it to you? I'm working, I'm, I'm building my kingdom how I want. I'm doing it with you 12 how I want. What is it to you if I do something else with somebody else? <laughs> I mean, that's essentially what Jesus told them. He says, you don't worry about them. And, and basically, consider this. You're all on the same team, you know? You all have gifts for the building up of the entire universal church, the kingdom of God. You should not have some elitist mentality that says, if you're not exactly following in my footsteps, we're going to stop you. I mean, this isn't the mafia. <laughs> this isn't the mob. I mean, that's... How patient is Christ with them? Hearing this infighting, and then John, you know, the beloved disciple, the apostle of love. But Jesus, but, but we try to do something good. <laughs> it's, it's comedy. You can't write this stuff. But Jesus says, don't stop him. And, and this is a, a black and white universal truth we should carry with us when we go to ministerial associations or uh, churches partnering with other churches or whatever it may be. The one who is not against you is for you. We quibble a lot about a lot of things. And I have my hills I die on, my convictions, my preferences, and things like that. But there definitely is a degree there. Convictions, you know, bedrock, scriptural, bang, right on. But preferences are way down there. And Jesus needs to tell them, and we need to be reminded the one who's not against you is for you. You will know when they're against you. You will know when they're against you. And those who are not against you, but don't fly your banner or pray like you or have a confession like you or sing songs like you or have a building like you or lack thereof, they're for you. All on the same team. I love, I love the local church. That's kind of a no-brainer, but I absolutely love the local church. 
I think it's the best place on earth, you know, especially on Sunday mornings, you know. But the local church gathered, knowing each other, praying for one another, bearing each other's burdens, seeing each other grow, seeing kids grow, yeah, even seeing bickering. It's, it's like watching a family. It's not like it is watching a family, actually, I guess. But I, I love the local church, but sometimes we just need to keep in mind the broader universal church. What, what Christ is doing all over the globe, you know, not just here, not just in Cody, not just in Gardnerville, Nevada, everywhere in Nevada, not just in the United States, North Korea, Hong Kong, wherever it may be, right? And this is what Paul says to a church who was proud, very prideful, very talented, the Corinthian church. He says in 1 Corinthians 12, there are a variety of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. If we do have some kind of elitist mentality and we do compete with others, we, we might need to be told we're not competing with each other. We're fighting against God. Because if God, in the council of Gamaliel, says, I'm going to use this person for this thing, and you try to fight that thing, that, that God-ordained movement, you're going to find yourself fighting against God. But this is what Paul says to this proud church. There's a lot of gifts. There's a lot of services. There's a lot of activities. But it's the same unified God in them all. And he goes down and says, For just as the body is one, and his many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all made, excuse me, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. We have one Father, one Lord, one Spirit, one faith, one baptism. There is one church. And discipleship in that church is not a matter of competing. You know? It's not a matter of exalting myself. And it's not a matter of figuring out how to manipulate one another. Or to claim like we're only doing it the really right way. In, in our Sunday school time, I just made a quip about, you know, the church I was in at a very early stage in my Christian life and how they did things. I think they did it wrong. But, but God uses so many things despite the error of it. Doesn't mean we should promote it. No, we should be excellent and faithful and right on in all that we do. However, you know, we don't have to, we shouldn't have any big brother mentality. It's like, oh, I, I know better than you. You know, just, just wait till you grow up, you know, then you'll figure it out. Like, that's not, that's not Christ. That's not Christ at all. So, 
Discipleship in Christ is gospel-centered that way. It's inherently connected with Jesus himself, who was perfect, glorious, in splendor. And he dies to those rights, and he serves. And that ought to be how we walk in his footsteps. And recognize this, that when we fail in that, Jesus is growing us in all of these things. Like, yeah, we're going to bicker, we're going to fight. I have friends I love to argue about, theology stuff with. But at the end of the day, Christ is growing all of us in this. So he doesn't leave us up to our own fleshly infighting or pursuits of self-aggrandizement. He wouldn't, let his, he wouldn't let us there. But he sanctifies us and transforms us into his perfect image. Think about that. He transforms us from bickering, fighting, prideful disciples to selfless, generous, gracious, loving disciples. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Father, I thank you that you have revealed so clearly in your word, what does it mean to follow Christ? That we would love his model, not in theory, but in action. Not in theory, Lord, but in action. That we would actually love to receive the difficult people, the lowly people that we would love to see others grow in Christ, not compete against them, that we would love the good and growing service of your Spirit in all of us. Transform us into your image more and more, painful as it is, but grow us in that grace, we pray. Amen.